As federal pandemic response lumbers along, the lessons learned are piling up. That's thanks to the work of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, fondly known as the PRAC. Here with an update, the PRAC Executive Director, Bob Westbrooks. Bob, good to have you on. Great. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. And so you've come out uh, just a few weeks ago with a list of those lessons that are starting to be seen. And I guess there's one that's obvious, and we'll start right there. Self-certified information needs to be validated before payments are sent. Sounds like that didn't happen in enough cases. Give us more here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in some instances in the CARES Act, Congress wrote into the law self-certification as an eligibility requirement or a lack of requirement. And they did it because at the time, of course, there was this great urgency to get money out the door. But what we've seen is that self-certification is not an effective fraud control measure. We've seen it with the SBA's Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, which gave loans to businesses that were established before a certain date, January 30th of 2020. And a simple check on eligibility would be if the business was not established prior to that date, they wouldn't be eligible for the loan. And that's something that could be readily determined through tax records. And that was not done. SBA uh, just relied upon a certification from a business that they were in existence before a certain date before they approved loans and dispersed. So that's one instance that has since been fixed, I do want to note. And we've seen it in other areas with the unemployment insurance area, for example, Congress gave money to gig workers and self-employed, and that presented all sorts of problems because there's no employer or prior records that state workforce agencies could check against and they relied upon just self-certification of folks that they were making X amount of money and had been gainfully employed. And we've seen, of course, the news stories about the fraud and uh, unemployment. Yes, I guess people could say, gee, I'm a gig worker now. Let me get some money. And I guess lesson number two then is related because it says to prioritize funding for underserved communities. And I've actually heard real people talk about the fact that, golly, there's all this money here. Let's take it. And I know of people that have retired as a result of taking that money. Clearly, they were not underserved. And that seems to be something that was a particular notice of the PRAC. It has been, and it's a continuing focus of our entire group. We've got ongoing oversight work in this area where we're looking at specific programs, and we've been doing listening forums where we're highlighting underserved communities, and we're getting experts together and sort of framing out the issues. What we found with the uh, SBA's Paycheck Protection Program, for example, in the law, it was written that they were to collect certain demographic information to ensure and to prioritize underserved communities. The SBA Inspector General found that that was not happening. Since that time, SBA has modified their loan application forms to collect demographic data, which is very helpful. Most importantly, though, and this goes to what you were just talking about, Tom, is they changed the initial rules. The initial rules were first come, first serve. Well, that certainly gives the advantage to folks that have established relationships with uh, national lenders, those lenders that were responsible for most of the PPP loans, and it disadvantages uh, underserved communities. So based upon some of the attention that the inspector general had drawn to that issue, uh, SBA reversed that first come, first serve. Really proud of that, too, because they applied that lesson not only for the third round of the PPP program, but most recently with the Restaurant Revitalization Fund, they realized that first come, first serve is not an equitable model. But is there a potential moral hazard in looking at communities versus simply individual Americans? Because you could have someone who is in an underserved community but is personally well-served, 
and vice versa, you could have someone in a well-served community who is personally in trouble. I think that's a valid point. I think from our standpoint, there's so much that we don't know because of gaps in federal data. So it's difficult for us to even sort of tackle an issue like that because we look at federal spending data from a number of different lenses and a number of different perspectives, not just one dimensional. So fundamentally, there's some unknowable questions because the data is not present. And that's another emphasis. And it goes to another one of our lessons learned. And it's an emphasis of the PRAC is working with OMB and Congress to fine tune and refine federal spending data. We're speaking with Bob Westbrooks. He is executive director of the Pandemic Relief Accountability Committee. Yeah, that is one of lessons number three, and that is use of existing federal data sources, let alone data that the government does not have. But it sounds like a lot of the money giver outers were not using the data that the federal government does have. Yeah, and I think that's particularly frustrating for a lot of taxpayers for whom we serve is that when the government has existing systems in place to uh, ensure that we don't pay dead people and we don't pay businesses or individuals that have been uh, suspended or barred from uh, federal contracting, I think they expect reasonably so that we use those systems to prevent further payments. And what we found is that's not the case. We found it with IRS payments, the EIP payments that went out to individuals. There was a number that were a significant number that were paid to dead people. And we saw it with the Paycheck Protection Program as well, where there were folks that got PPP loans that had been prohibited from doing business with the federal government. And of course, in enterprises this large, it comes down to numbers and percentages. And, you know, one tenth of one percent error is still a big number in the case of PPP loans and so on. Do you find that the agencies responsible for these disbursements have well-established guidelines for what is not to say acceptable, but what is to be a reasonably expected level of slop or fraud or graft or something in something so large that the cost to eliminate that would be greater than what you're losing? That's a great question. You know, we're dealing with numbers at such a different scale now. It's hard to wrap your head around it, right? So to go to what you were talking about, you know, what is the fraud level within the Department of Labor's unemployment insurance program? Well, using conservative estimates from the IG, yeah, it's probably 10% or some percentage of 10%. That's still $89 billion of suspected fraud. So the absolute figure, because of the numbers we're talking about with the $5 trillion in relief aid, the absolute dollars are significant, right? Even though at a program level, the fraud might be small, but really that hasn't been our experience. We've seen, you know, when there's brand new programs like the PPP program or massive historic expansions of programs like unemployment insurance or economic injury disaster loan, we're seeing high percentages of fraud. We can't quantify it at this point in time, but a higher than expected. And we're working with those individual agencies, working with OMB, to ensure that controls are put in place as they implement more programs for the American Rescue Plan efforts. All right. And I wanted to move on to another lesson. Recipients and administrators need timely and clear guidance to get benefits out efficiently and accurately. Guidance from whom and guidance about what? Yeah, this goes to what we cite in our report, which your listeners can find on pandemicoversight.gov, which has this and many other reports, and we encourage folks to go there and, and look at federal spending. This goes to the coronavirus relief fund. $150 billion are given out to state and locals, and that was you know March 
of 2020 with instructions to get this money out the door and spend it by December 2020. Great urgency. Between March and December, I think there were three different program guidances issued and eight different FAQs. And we found through our state and local partners that there was tremendous confusion among them as to what current guidance is, what's accurate guidance for this. That has been rectified a little bit with the American Rescue Plan, which is now with a similar program to the state and locals. I think it's $350 billion, and states have till 2024 to spend that money, so the pressure is off a little bit, and additional guidance has been put out by Treasury. What the state and locals need is clear guidance from Treasury, from OMB, on how to spend this money and what controls need to be in place to ensure there's transparency and accountability of it. It sounds like in relating the fact that some of these problems have been fixed over time, that these original programs were set up with some resiliency to be able to be changed and not carved in stone and, sorry, that's the way it is. Yeah, I mean, some issues have been fixed. I don't want anybody to be misled or deceived into thinking that all problems have been fixed. They haven't been, and we're working daily with agencies and OMB on fixing problems, right? Because it does come to the cost of fraud controls, and you alluded to that earlier. You want to make sure all your internal controls are cost-effective, right, in terms. You have to balance the stewardship of this with the public service mission of there are programs that need to get the money out the door, and we're, we're sensitive to that. We're aware of that, and we're working with agencies to you know fix controls you know, on an agency agency by agency basis. And I wanted to ask you about the finding that recipients of relief funds should be fully disclosed to the public. By that, do you recommend every individual getting any kind of a loan for a micro business or gig workers or incorporated entities or, or really everybody? Yeah, we do. I mean, it's our position that, you know, if you get federal money, The fact of that is something that should be shared with the American public. I think it's only fair and it goes to the heart of our transparency mission. We had issues last year. The SBA had taken a position that if you had gotten a PPP loan under $150,000, they were not going to give your name and address. I mean, they took a position if you got a loan over $150,000, they were not going to give the exact loan amount. It's difficult for us to provide transparency and accountability when you play by those rules. And we depend upon folks like yourself and your listeners to go to our website, look at the spending data, and report suspected fraud. That was one of the great lessons learned from the recovery board was this idea of the citizen watchdog. $5 trillion is being spent. It's your money. It's my money. It's friends and neighbors' money. We should have eyes on where it's going and how it's being spent. I wanted to ask you about that because it seems like 10,000 years ago, we did have a recovery accountability and transparency board, the famed RAT board for the money appropriated in 2008 and nine for that economic situation. You've been in touch with those folks, and there have been some lessons learned in operating this kind of oversight from the RAT board that, yes, have they carried forward to the PRAC? Absolutely. We're standing on their shoulders. They were great. They had to uh, be pathfinders for us and, and find a way to increase transparency, and there wasn't any. So there has been significant statutory change since then, but not only in the transparency side, but also on the data analytics side. We're not starting from scratch. We're taking the lessons learned from the, the RAT board, as you called it, had a recovery operations center, the ROC, that was just absolutely groundbreaking in the federal government. It had expired when the RAT board expired in 2000. 2015. We've taken a lot of their best practices and lessons learned, applied it to today's environment with modern IGs, many of whom have native data analytics capabilities and saying, okay, fast forwarding to today, 
using those lessons, how can we best serve IGs? And it's been a tremendous success. We just issued a contract for, we call it the Pandemic Analytics Center of Excellence. But I think that's going to be the continuing legacy uh, that you'll see the thread directly from the ROC and the RAP board to our organization. And just from your personal standpoint now, there have been two summers of pandemic and all of the mechanisms that go along with it. And so do you feel that in the work you've been doing since the PRAC was stood up that you're shoveling against the tide? Or do you feel the sense that there's really been some progress made? On a personal level, I think there's been significant progress made. I'm incredibly proud that we've been able to bring the communities come together. There are over 275 audit reports that have been issued since the pandemic. There are 200 ongoing jobs right now across the IG community. We've come together shoulder to shoulder with GAO. That's just on the audit side. When I think about on the investigative side, what we're doing with our fraud task force, it is absolutely remarkable. And doing it all in a once in a century global pandemic when we're all under stay at home orders is, uh, is a feat to see. And if you get to the occasional barbecue or cookout, what do you tell people about your work when the chit-chat is going on? We're here to help be the eyes and ears for taxpayers on $5 trillion in federal spending. And we need their help. They need our help. And that's what we're doing. Bob Westbrooks is executive director of the Pandemic Relief Accountability Committee. Thanks so much for joining me. All right. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life, And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, 
I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... Um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From Sea to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture 
of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. It's a well-known fact that good sleep leads to a happier life. Okay, maybe that's not a fact fact, but don't you just feel amazing after a great night's sleep? Like the first night back in your own bed after traveling. It's time to demand more first night back kind of sleep. Stop tossing and turning and talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.